chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat uh, in front of you, kind of like at an airplane. And underneath the seat in front of you should be a, a Bible. And we'll be in chapter 10 of the first book of the Bible. And if you remember, we've, uh, we're resuming our walk through Genesis. We've done John over the last eight to nine weeks. And now we're going back to Genesis um, as we continue through this book. Now, what I want to bring up is many of you, if you are like me, have been watching the news. And we've been watching this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I would be remiss to not bring this up. You know, when I'm tempted to be overwhelmed with the evil in the world, when I consider the damage that this invasion is doing, when I watch the images coming out of the Ukraine due to this Russian aggression, I'm really tempted to despair. Because it is heartbreaking, isn't it? To hear children scream when missiles hit a building. To watch people's faces be marred by um, shrapnel from combat. And so it's so easy to be despaired. And yet, we need to remember one thing. That God is in control of all circumstances. As you watch the news, you need to wrestle with that question. Because I think we all have that question. Who's in control of this? Are we just stardust that has hit the earth and then later came into protoplasm that later uh, caused chemical reactions in our brains and then now we just operate out of a, uh, a worldview that is purely materialistic. We're just nothing but busy stardust going off in our brains. Who is in control of this? Why is there so much chaos? Why is there evil in the world? Is God in control? Then where is he? Where is God? Is he sitting back, Ryan said, did God didn't take his hand off the steering wheel, right? Is God in control? Is he sitting back letting us make a mess of things? Or is he in there just doing the best that he can? I would argue that God is in complete control. And he has a plan in all of this. And I believe that this is based on what we see in Scripture today. Our passage in Scripture today is a slightly complicated one. We're going to stumble over some words, some names, some nations. But it's, I think you're going to see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that gives me great hope. So if you're in Genesis chapter 10, you should see the first thing is the table of nations. So these are the family records of Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Timorous. Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riptha, and Torgamah. And Javan's sons, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these descendants, the people of the coast, the islands, spread out into their lands according to their clans in their nations, each with its own language. Ham's sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Cush's sons, Seba, Havilah, Sebta, Rama, and Sebteca. And Rama's sons, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, who became who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kilneh in the land of Shinar. 
From the land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city, Kalah. 13. Mizraim fathered the people of Lud, Enam, Leba, Lehab, Nephtah, Patharus, Kasla, the Philistines came from them, and Kaphtor. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, and the Ar- Arvidites, and the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the Canaanite clan scattered. The Canaanite bar- border went from Sidon going down to Gerar, as far as Gaza, and going towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adamah, and Zeboim, as far as Lashah. These are Ham's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in the lands, lands of and their nations. And Shem, Japheth's older brother, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Just so you know, that's where we get the word Hebrew, right? Heber. Shem, uh, Shem's sons were Elam, Asher, Arpachah, Shad, Lud, and Aram. Aram's sons, Uzhul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Heber. Heber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Jokin, and Jokin fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazar Meveth, Jerar, Had Oram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimal, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were Jokin's sons. Their settlements extended from Mesha to Sephar, Sephar, the eastern hill country. These are Shem's sons by their clans according to their languages in the lands and their nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their family records in their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. Chapter 11. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. Imagine that if we could say those names better. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city in a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. After all that, we need to pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how your word speaks truth. Lord, as we think about the world that we live in, the um, chaos, the possibility of China uh, flexing on Taiwan, and the way the, the Russians are, are acting in Ukraine, Lord, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your grace. Lord, we know you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and all nations will bow before you one day. Lord, everyone will have to give an account before the maker of the universe. 
So, Father, we trust in that. We trust that you are in control of all these things, that nothing is outside of your command. So, Father, we humble ourselves this morning to read your word, to understand uh, what you would have us know. Lord, how is Christ glorified in the history of the nations? That's the question that I have. That's a question that we have today. Lord, I pray for those who have come to church this morning, that their hearts would be settled by your word, that they would find great confidence in you and comfort in what your word has shown to be true. Lord, be with us and guide us this morning as we open your word. Lord, be with me. Help me to not be long-winded as there's so much in here that is so rich. God, we know that you are good and we want to see that in this passage. And all these things we ask in the beautiful name of Christ through the power of the Spirit. Amen. So the Bible gives us an origin story, right? A lot of people wonder, hey, what's, what's going on? Why is the world the way that it is? Why are things the way that they are? Well, the scriptures answer that for us. That's what we have the book of Genesis for, right? Why are things so messed up? Where did people come from? Why do we have all these languages? Why is it so hard to learn a foreign language? These are the questions that we have, and Scripture answers them for us. And so it keeps giving us a much more plausible um, reason for why things are the way they are. If you look in your bulletin, you will find a handout. It has a lot of information. There's a whole genealogy list in there. Remember back to the grade school days when you had to do like a family history and write in your name and follow the little family tree, and you had a big family tree in your school? I don't know if they do that anymore, but that's the way that things used to be in the day. So you have two genealogies in there. You have Noah's genealogy, and the second genealogy you see is an Irish genealogy. This is an early Irish genealogy that was found that goes all the way back to who? Isn't that interesting? So over and over again, we see evidence that this genealogy story is true, that there is something to be said about this spread of the nations into other places. In fact, there was some DNA research that was recently discovered. They said there's like one woman that all the DNA seems to bottleneck at, right? So there was all these people, and then all of a sudden something happened, and then there's this one woman, and then all this DNA came from that one woman. Hmm. They said, but this doesn't mean that there was an Eve or an Adam we don't, or a Noah. We don't believe that. That's what the article said. So we have all this DNA evidence for it, and more and more we're seeing the truth of Scripture coming out. And so how do we address this? Well, I need to go to a recap. So in Genesis, we started in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. All things were created by God, for God, through God. He created man and woman in his own image. Men and women all have a reason for existence, to glorify God. And so he created them. Yet, what happens in the garden? Satan uses the serpent as a vessel in order to deceive Eve. And Adam willfully obeys God's word and takes of the forbidden fruit. Sometimes it's referred to as an apple. I think it's a kiwi, but that's just my opinion. And the forbidden fruit is taken and mankind falls. They fall. They are in rebellion against God. And we are in rebellion. So the first part of Genesis is God, us walking with God. And the whole thing is a big old mess until the end, right? That's what the Bible shows us. So this is the thing. Sin has come into the world. Now, Adam and Eve, they are kicked out of Eden. They are no longer allowed to be in paradise and walk with the Lord. In fact, they have to go out east of Eden. And that's an important theme in Genesis, east. 
going east, being put to the east. Anything to the east should remind you of the garden problem. And then they have children. And what do their children do? They get into a fight, and Cain kills Abel. Murder happens. Now we have murder going on. And so God curses Cain, says you're going to wander. You can't build a city. Cain goes and rebels against God and tries to build a city. And then everything is wicked. Mankind are wicked. And we have two lines of people. We have the, the Sethites and the Cainites. The people that come from Cain and the people that come from Seth. Now, the people that come from Seth are supposed to be sons of God. They're supposed to be obedient to the Lord, yet they intermingle with the Cainites, the children of Cain, and they begin to intermingle and worship themselves, and wickedness abounds, and God says, I'm going to cause a flood. God causes a flood. He saves Noah because Noah walked with him, and he wanted to preserve a people, and Noah survives, and then he gets, he gets real drunk. Noah builds a vineyard, which is really dedicated to build a vineyard, because how long does it take to cultivate grapes and all that stuff? And makes him, so he's so dedicated on getting drunk, he, he does this, he spends all his time farming to make a vineyard, gets drunk, and then we have this weird story about a tent and his son Ham seeing him naked and then making fun of his dad, and then Noah wakes up and he curses Ham and he blesses Shem and Japheth. And now we get to where we are. That was a a fast thing over the last 16 weeks of, of Genesis that I did a long time ago. So we have a, a blessing and a curse, and then we come to chapter 10. So it's very interesting that we have the creation of a people. Now, my goal, I'm going to give you my goal up front. I want you to see God's hand in accomplishing his plan in redemptive history. He has a purpose in history, and it's the redemption of a people. So that's, the, that's what I want you to see. So in the table of nations, we see God creating a people for himself. He is actively involved in the world. So chapter 10, we begin to get all these names. It starts out with this genealogy. Now the Hebrews love genealogy because that showed their connection to what God has promised, the blessing of God. And so we see in this that we have a genealogy. Now, this is much more than an individual genealogy. I just want to point that out as we go. These are not just individuals. There are individuals in here, but they are more likely just heads of state, right? So um, I'm not going to even try to say the Ukrainian president's name, but Zelensky um, essentially is the line that we would see. So that would be like all Ukrainians, okay? That's kind of how we see this here. Um, we do have plurals. Anything that ends with an I-M in these passages are pluralities. So that would be like Amer, right? That would be the same thing in Hebrew. So we have groups of people and we have individuals mentioned in this genealogy. So they're important ancestors that um, describe the overall different descendants of, Mo of Noah. All right, so verse one, we have this. These are the family records of. That's a common heading in Genesis. That's how you break Genesis up. These are the, the family records of such and such. And then it goes into a statement. So it's a heading. Now there are 70 nations mentioned in here. That doesn't mean that's all inclusive. That's just how many are mentioned. 70 nations. Now from a purely literary standpoint, this is really fascinating. And I get real nerdy. You know that. So look at this. It says, these are Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Right? Right? Now, that's not their birth order, which would be normal for a Hebrew. 
But it's interesting. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are mentioned. Then we start with who? Whose sons do we begin with? Japheth. So it's inverted. So the author does Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which would make more sense if it was inverted, right? Because we're starting with Japheth. What Noah, uh, Moses is doing, the author of, this, of Genesis, what he is doing is he is showing us that he is going to lead to a climax because we're going to end with Shem. Shem is the father or the great-great-great-grandfather of Abraham. And Abraham is who the Israelites come from. Okay, we got this. I know it gets kind of confusing. So, Japheth. Japheth is only from verses 2 through 5, his sons. That's not a lot of people, is it? They're not going into detail. So, Japheth is very short. Just quickly look through that and see if there's anything that stands out. Not really a ton of names except for this Magog, right? Gog and Magog, you guys have heard that before. We're not going into that yet. We see that those are some of the descendants. Then we see at the end of verse 4, Kittim and Dodaniam. Those are plurals. So just recognize that they're plural descendants. And then we go to verse 5, and it gives us a summary of Japheth. It says, from these descendants, the peoples of the coast and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans in their nations, each with its own language. So in that little uh, handout in your bulletin should have a map. On that map, it will show you each of the where each of the kids go, right? So you'll see at the bottom, there's a, what we call a legend. And in the legend, it tells you uh, what color coding goes to the names. It's very technical. You'll get it. It's pretty simple. You'll figure it out. So you can see that these are mostly the, tri uh, the, the coastal nations. What's interesting to me is that the Irish genealogy follows this Japheth. Because guess where the people spread to? They spread to the coast, to the islands. And Ireland is kind of an island, right? And so anyways, you, you, get, the, you get the picture. So we see that these groups have populated the west and the Aegean region. Now we have Ham. Now Ham is the longest, is one of the longest. 6 through 20, verses 6 through 20, talk about Ham. Now I don't want to go through each and every one of Ham's sons. But I do want you to see that there's a lot of names that you're going to be familiar with if you are familiar with the Old Testament. We have Cush, we have Nimrod, we have Sodom and Gomorrah, we have the Canaan, uh, Canaan, and we have the Philistines. These are all the enemies that the Israelites had to face. So the, the son that Noah cursed is the progenitor of all these people that fought against the Israelites. So just recognize that that's what we see going on. There's an interesting subscript in verse 8, talking about this guy named Nimrod. Not Nim, never mind, Nimrod. He is quite famous, they said. Um, and I think famous in a bad way. I think he is probably violent and wicked. He, uh, I base this on his name. Nimrod means let us rebel. Sounds like a bad name to call somebody. And then, of course, we have some of the grammatical stuff I don't want to go into, but likely Nimrod was hostile and openly hostile before God. He was wicked before the Lord. And what cities does he found? Where, is he the, where, does, he, uh, king, where does his kingdom start in verse 10? Babylon. That's a pretty common name. We know about that. Eric, Akkad, and Kalanea. And where do the Philistines come from? 
that same family line. So what we have is the same wickedness coming in the same family. In verse 20, we get a summary statement. So many of those that are listed here become enemies of Israel when we know Moses writes out the history, which is important because if you're an Israelite and you're reading your history for the first time, what does that help you understand? Why are we fighting the Canaanites? Why are we fighting these same people? Okay, then we go to Shem. And remember, guys, I'm moving lightning fast because it's so fascinating. I really want to stay here and just read all day long, but we're not going to do that. We got to go to Shem. Shem is the line that the Israelites come from. They are the line of Abraham. But it's also interesting to note that where does the Messiah, where does Christ come from? The line of Shem. In fact, Luke chapter 3, 36 says, The son of Canaan, son of Arxphax, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech. So note that this genealogy in Shem is actually interrupted. So Shem, Shem's genealogy goes all the way down to 11, and then we get interrupted with the Tower of Babel. So just recognize that's there. 21, I already mentioned Eber, right? The father of the Hebrews. So Eber, let's go down to his sons. In verse 25, Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided. And his brothers was named Joktan. Peleg is the line that we trace the lineage of Christ. So just recognize that in this history. So 31 summarizes the sons of Shem. It says, These are Shem's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands and their nations. Then verse 32 summarizes the whole section. It says, These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their family records, in their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. And then we get to 11, chapter 11. So before we get to 11, what is God's purpose in the table of nations? Well, God said, be fruitful and multiply and spread and fill the earth. Uh, go and fill the earth. That's what he told Noah. So the people of God or the people that are surviving this thing, they're supposed to spread and we see Moses highlighting two groups. He highlights the enemies of Israel that descended from him or from Ham and Shem's sons, which lead to Abraham. And then he has the, the opposite, the enemies, those that came from, uh, sorry, full delineation between the nations and the future of Israel. So when we are, we are tempted in, in, in our Bible reading plans to want to skip these names, don't we? Right, or we just kind of like mumble through them as we read because we don't see them as important. When you had a genealogy project in school, you had a lot of names on your genealogy project. And as you get closer and closer to your close near family, the names become more important, don't they? They become more significant. Oh, that's grandma. Oh, that's great grandma. And then we get to great great grandpa and great great grandma. People we've never met, we begin to kind of fade out in interest. But what we see in Scripture is it's important to remember where this all came from because we need to appreciate that this is a testimony of God's careful providence and direction in human history. It's the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So God has purposely planned out these nations in order for Christ to be glorified, for Christ to be magnified, for Christ to come. And so... I'm going to give you an illustration. When I was a little kid, I, was, I grew up in West Africa. You guys know my parents were missionaries. 
and we would go to the ocean occasionally. And when I was at the ocean, I liked to make something called, I called it a water work, right? And I would dig big tunnels into the dirt, and I would spread and make all these little water works. And so when the waves came, they would follow my little water works and would go into different little you know, holes in the ground, and I put my little army men in there, right? And so that same thing, I think, is important to help us understand God as he works through time. So God has laid out a path for history. He has dug his tunnels. He has dug out the waterworks. And then all of history travels through his waterworks, traveling along a, pre, a path that's been preordained before the foundation of the world. Now, remember, God is outside of time, and yet at the same time is involved in time. So think about this. So I lay out my waterworks, and the wave comes along and starts to move along its path. Now, I have left turns, and I have right turns. I have some splits, some changes in directions, all these things in my waterworks. What seems random or arbitrary is actually for a purpose. There's a reason why I want the water to go the way that it is. And so the same thing with us. When we see Russia invade Ukraine, we say, man, that does not look like a good place to go. This looks bad. We don't know what God is doing in history. When we look at this Tower of Babel, we see that humankind has made a choice and the whole world seems to suffer the consequences. But I think God has organized this for a reason. So... This illustration, of course, is going to break down because God is much larger and greater, and we have all sorts of decisions that we make inside the course of time and in this path. Hebrews 12 tells us that we must run the race set out before us with faithfulness. So you do not control the circumstances in your life. You don't have control over the circumstances. You need to run with faithfulness the path that God has laid out for you. So you have to trust in God and make right choices in time as you trust in God's plan. So we see mankind's sinfulness and rebellion in the Tower of Babel, which is really what explains how the nation spread out over the whole earth. And I want to say that this is unwillingly. The people did not want to spread out. They wanted to combine and grow into a big city. God uses the faithlessness of the people to accomplish his task in history. So God uses this faithlessness, faithless, right, lack of faith, faithlessness in history in order to accomplish his greater task. So let's see the scattering of the people. Verse 1 of chapter 11 is not chronological because, what did we see all this? They spread out with their languages. They spread out with their languages. This happened sometime within this genealogy in chapter 10. So just recognize that because otherwise it would be really confusing. Moses is making this story serve the greater purpose of showcasing God's purpose and plan by creating a nation from Abram. It shows mankind's desire for independence and self-sufficiency. One one through three show mankind's tendency towards self-sufficiency. And we as Americans love self-sufficiency because that's just how we are. We were born out of independence, right? The revolution. And of course, in Arizona, we're even more because we're from this, you know, uh, what you call it, territory generation. So the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary in verse 1. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. So this is what everybody came from Noah, 
and the ark, they came, from which direction did they come from? Anybody notice that? The east. All right, they came from the east. Interesting. Okay, that's part of the east of Eden concept. Verse 3, they said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt. Some of you may have uh, bitterman is probably what you have in yours translation for mortar. So the self-sufficiency, first they have one language, right? Ancient Mesopotamians believed the same thing about one language. If you look at ancient uh, Mesopotamian writings, they said everybody had one language, and then at some point all the language got confused. Uh, they settled between the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's the location. Um, it's from the perspective of someone that is writing from Canaan. So if you were living in Canaan, you would say them moving from the east. Okay, technology. Location, there's a lot of asphalt in their location. This, this area is full of asphalt that you can use to make mortar for your bricks. Uh, the bricks gave them confidence in their own ability. It's really self-sufficient, is helped along by technology. Don't we have that same problem in our society today? We are the most connected yet most isolated group of people that has ever existed. We are the loneliest group of people in the whole world that's ever happened in history, aren't we? We have teenagers committing suicide, but they have a device in their hands that lets them call anybody that they want. It's insane. But our technology enables our self-sufficiency. Right? We don't need anybody because I can just call an Uber. I don't need to call a friend and have to deal with having a conversation with them. I'll just call an Uber. We don't need to really deal with going out to eat because guess what? We get some tasty treats delivered right to our door. I don't have to have a conversation with that person. So our technology has enabled this self-sufficiency mindset. And when, what we see in verse 4 is there's, there's really three reasons for their desire to build. Verse 4 says, they, and they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So Babel, later called Babylon, is a symbol for the worldly city. We see that in Revelation. We see that in Daniel. We see it all throughout Scripture. Babylon is the worldly city. It is the materialistic capital. It is like the New York City of the world. It's a place where humans try to exalt themselves as God. We see that in Babylon. So verse 4 says there's pride. They want to build a tower to the heavens. What they're saying is heaven is where God lives, and they want to build a tower as close to heaven as they can get it. And so now they have these bricks. They have this mortar. They can start to build. And now if you, if you look at ancient Near East uh, literature and images, you'll see something called a ziggurat, right? It looks like a pyramid, but it has like little steps all the way up. And we've seen some of these in other parts of Iraq. They have lots of them still standing. And that was kind of the idea, the design that they have. They're building this tower to heaven. And so in their pride, in the defiant hearts, they want autonomy. They don't want to be ruled by God. They do not want another being telling them what to do. Does that sound just like us? Doesn't that sound just like our own hearts? You can't tell me what to do. Who are you? Okay, you get it. They want this divine status. They want to be God. What did 
the snake tell Eve in the garden, if you eat this, you'll be like God. That's what pride is. Pride is a desire to be like God. The second thing we see in, in, the, in the second part of verse 4 is fame. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to extend their lives through their legacy. When their family goes back and looks, they want them to say, oh man, grandpa helped build that big tower that goes up to heaven. Right? They want a legacy. And then the last thing we see is they want security. Security in numbers. It keeps them from obeying God's commands. He said, well, God's not going to kill all of us if we all rebel. Let's all join together in the city in order to have this thing accomplished. So God's will for human beings is that we find our joy in knowing and praising Him, not being praised, which is against what they want. They want fame. The second thing is that God's will for human beings is that we find our joy in being secure in Him, not in security in a city or in a tower or our own refuge, or even our own technology. Then 5 through 9, we see Yahweh, we see God's, the covenant name of God. We see His response to the people. In verse 5, the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that the humans were building. Now this is sarcasm. I just want you to know, Moses is being super sarcastic, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit loves sarcasm. Their, their, their work was so insignificant that the Lord had to come down to see what they were building. So what they thought of as this big project, the Lord had to come down and say, what in the world? Right? That's the language we see in this passage, is the Lord is condescending to their pride. And that's how we are, right? We are so proud of ourselves. Man, look at all me, look at me, me, me. And God's like, yeah, look at you, you little worm. Right? We, our pride is so insignificant in light of God. And so we see that the Lord comes down to look at what their insignificant efforts are. He calls them the children of men, or he calls them the sons of Adam. That's the language we have here. That's significant. And then 8 through 9, God scatters them. When in our pride we seek fame, comfort, or security apart from God, he exalts himself. Throughout the earth, his purpose happens all along. So we see that mankind rejects God's word. He said to fill the earth, they rejected it. Rather, they chose to, out of their pride, their hubris, with a desire for fame and security to build a tower. And God confuses the language. He destroys man's pride. He says, you know what? You won't even be able to talk to each other. I'm going to destroy your pride by confusing your languages and accomplishing his immediate plan. What was his immediate plan? To get him to spread out all over the whole earth. And so he's like, I'll do it this way. Do we not do this in our own life? Don't we seek our own self-sufficiency? Don't we have magnificent technology where we can rely too much on ourselves? Our Babylonian society that we live in will point to a materialistic solution to our problems. Are you sad? Retail therapy. Are you mad? There's a gadget for that. There's an app for that. Are you bored? Instant entertainment. You don't even have to go anywhere. You just pull your phone out. Essentially, humankind worships something because they think it will provide comfort, security, or hope. The problem is that if it's not God, the things that we seek is rebellion and leads to misery. When we seek drugs, when we seek alcohol, when we seek money, when we seek fame, 
All these things are ways that we try to find fame, security, pleasure, happiness, hope, comfort outside of the will of God, His revealed will. So we all worship something. So even in rebellion, God's ultimate plan will be accomplished. He still plans and executes His redemptive purpose even in the wickedness of human choices. And that's how we see Christ glorified in this passage. And I'm going to go as fast as I can without taking away from the glory of Christ. So just bear with me a few more minutes. Now you might be scratching your head. You may be saying, how in the world is Christ in this passage? Where is Christ? Well, I want you to see that God's hand is in all of this. When God permits this, He does so with a reason. So when I'm doing my waterworks, I know that a strong wave may come in and destroy the whole plan. So what do I do? I make little dead ends and forks in my waterworks so that when the wave comes, the big powerful wave, it comes in and then I start to siphon off some of the, wet, the water in order that the main purpose of my waterworks is accomplished. Right? It makes sense. Now, obviously, like I said, this is a bad illustration for God because God is more powerful than the wave that comes in. God is more powerful than any plan that he puts into place. We know this, but that's the idea. God has used this because he's directing in his providence that there are no accidents. God permits this spectacular sin of man's pride and hubris and rebellion so that he can scatter the nations. God's plan has always been to scatter the nations. And so when man rebels and chooses not to, he has worked that into the plan. He has a plan so that they will be spread. He confuses the language, and then he uses it for the global glory of Christ. All these other languages is for God's glory. Think about that for a minute. I have several reasons. Number one, protection. There is not one monolithic anti-Christian state. It is a protection for the Christians today. Human uniformity is more dangerous. Evil humans cannot be allowed to unite. And guess what? The gospel spreads because of the over four or over 6,000 languages in the world today. So there's a protection for the Christians that there's not one nation state that decides all together with the same language to destroy Christians. Second, we see pride. In the last day, God will no longer restrain evil and people will become united against Christ and his people. Revelation 17.6 shows how Babylon was drunk with Christian martyrs, yet she was to be put down. The end time style, end times style tower of Babel. Verse, uh, let me read Revelation 17.6. Then I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Revelation 18.5 says, For her sins are piled up to heaven. See the tower? Piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. Revelation 18.7, As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. 18.10 says, They will stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The pride of man will one day be fully eliminated from the earth. Third, proclamation. The way of Christ will be proclaimed to every person. Sin separated every tribe, tongue, and nation. Think about that. 
Sin separated every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yet Christ will do what? Unite every tribe, tongue, and nation. What a magnificent, magnificent thought. Every language will praise Jesus. Isaiah 66, 18 through 19. Knowing their works and their thoughts, I have come to gather all nations and languages. They will come and see my glory. I will establish a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations. Now listen to these nations. To Tarshish, Put, Lud, who are archers, Tubal, Javan, and the coasts and islands far away. Does that sound familiar? Just like what we read. Who have not heard about me or seen my glory, and they will proclaim my glory among the nations. Revelations 5, uh, Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, this is Jesus, and to open his seals because you were slaughtered. And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So disobedient and hardened hearts do not frustrate God's plans, but lead them to fruition. This rebellion is how God magnifies Christ. This narrative points to a greater reality, the God that God orchestrates history for His purpose. And what is God's purpose? Christ. To magnify Christ. To glorify Christ in all this. Man, if this Tower of Babel did not happen, we were all one language and one united around a city that is not God, it would not be glorifying to Christ. So when man tries to to organize around one city, God busts them up so that they can organize around the city of Zion. Christ lifted up. God scattered humankind in order to draw from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, a people to worship him, to gather around the one true object of worship, Christ high and lifted up. God erected something better to worship himself. So the question that I'm going to leave you with as we end is, will you be scattered by your own pride? Will you use your pride to bust up relationships? Will you use your pride to bust up friendships? Will you use your pride to exalt yourself in this world? Will you be scattered by seeking your own comfort, your own security, your own happiness outside of God? If you are to be scattered, you will fail. It will fail. But you can turn and be gathered to the living God, who is himself the source of all joy and satisfaction. Trust in Jesus Christ and be gathered in. That is my request to you. If you do not know this Jesus, if you have not been gathered in, now is the time to make that commitment. Do not wait and be scattered. Do not be like Pharaoh and have your heart hardened. Do not continue down a path of destruction and rebellion because you will regret it. It will be regret. And there may be a time when you do not have the chance to turn from it. So my goal in all this was to help you see God's hand in accomplishing his redemptive purpose in all of history. Even when Russia invades Ukraine, even when they get their nukes and they put them on high alert, we can trust that God has a plan in all of this. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father God, your word is magnificent. Your word is true and it cuts deep into our hearts. Lord, as we see Christ lifted up in this passage, 
that you had a purpose for history from the beginning. There's no accidents, no mistakes. Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ. That Christ came to die for a sinner like me. That he would die willingly on the cross. And we could have joy in God through the blood of Christ. The ultimate sacrifice. And that we can be drawn to worship. That we can be a worshiping people who worship in spirit and truth like the, the Gospel of John talks about. That we would be a people who seek our joy, comfort, and satisfaction in Christ alone. Lord, we pray for these things. We, we long for these things. We pray for the people of Ukraine that you would uh, have mercy on the innocent and at the same time spread your gospel. That your good news would travel to the ends of the earth and every tribe, tongue, and language would be speaking heavenly words of worship. Father, we long for these things. We pray as like the book of Revelation prays, come Lord Jesus, come. We long for your return. And these things we ask in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen.